Good morning. I am reading from the Common English Bible, the Gospel of Luke 22, 35 through 53. Jesus said to them, When I sent you out without a wallet, bag, or sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, Nothing. And then he said to them, But now, whoever has a wallet must take it, and likewise a bag. And those who don't have own a sword must sell their clothes and buy one. I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in relation to me. And he was counted among criminals. Indeed, what's written about me is nearing completion. Then they said to him, Lord, look, here are two swords, he replied. Enough of that. Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. And the disciples followed him. And when he arrived, he said to them, pray that you won't give in to temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. He was in anguish and, and prayed even more earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. And when he got up from praying, he went to the disciples. He found them asleep, overcome by grief. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd appeared, and the one called Judas one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the human one with a kiss? When those around him recognized what, what was about to happen, they said, Lord, should we fight with our swords? One of them struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus responded, stop, no more of this. He touched the slave's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, the elders who had come to get him, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a thief? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, but you didn't arrest me. But this is your time when darkness rules. My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor at Trinity. I invite you to pray with me as we approach God's word this morning. 
Come Holy Spirit. Breathe into these words that have been handed down to us by eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Show us what it means to live according to the pattern that he set for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the night before Jesus dies, he's having dinner with his disciples. It's, it's a holiday meal, and he's trying to figure out how to prepare the disciples for what's ahead. And he says to them, do you guys remember back when I sent you out to preach and heal, and I told you not to take a wallet or, or bags or anything, and it all went really smoothly? Um, that, by the way, happened back in Luke chapter 9. Um, And the disciples think back, and they're like, yeah, we remember that. And Jesus says, well, I want you to know, times are about to change. And now what I'm saying to you is pack your bags and sell your pants to buy a sword. Now, the disciples hear this, and they are surprised, and they are delighted. Because they've been wanting to do that for literally forever, and Jesus has been holding them back. Jesus has been stuck on this, like, blessed are the peacemakers bit for years now, and the disciples have been telling him this is a really bad plan, but now Jesus has finally clearly come around and he's ready to fight. So the disciples are like, Jesus, we are way ahead of you, and they whip out from under the table the two swords that they've brought along. And Jesus says, in the Greek, the original language the Bible's written in, Jesus says, that's enough. Now, the question is, what does that mean? Like, is this like, that's enough, guys? Or is this like, "Mm, that's enough? Like, what is Jesus exactly meaning to communicate here? Well, after dinner is over, Jesus and the disciples leave the meal, and they walk outside up the road to their favorite prayer spot. And Jesus says to them, I want you guys to pray that you don't give in to temptation, And the disciples have literally no idea what he means. Like, the only temptation they've experienced tonight is to have second dessert. So so they're like, all right. But it it becomes clear in a hurry that whatever's going on, Jesus is clearly feeling really tempted because he is praying so hard, he's sweating. Have you you ever seen someone sweat their way through prayer? And and the disciples are watching this, and they don't really know what it means, but it's making them feel anxious, so they they decide to take a little bit of a stress nap just to get away from whatever is going on in Jesus' head. So so the disciples are stress napping, and Jesus is praying and sweating, and, and all of a sudden they wake to loud voices, and this crowd comes marching in, armed with torches and weapons led by their friend Judas, And they're sleepy and they're confused and it's really late at night and they don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden they realize that Jesus is about to be arrested. And one of them says, Master, is this why you told us to sell our pants and buy a sword? And one of the disciples is like, I'm not even going to wait for an answer here. And he takes out a sword and he just swings. And you know, the thing about being with Jesus is you don't get a lot of opportunity for sword practice. So his aim is not particularly good. And all he manages to do is swipe an ear off the high priest's chief servant. And Jesus turns, sighs, looks at him, and says, Stop it. No more of this. And he heals the servant's ear. And then he turns to his arresters and says, 
what made you all think you needed swords to come and arrest me? Are you confused yet? The disciples are deeply confused here. (laughs) Apparently, Jesus has had this conversation with them thinking they're going to know what he's talking about after years of being together, but they clearly have missed it. And it's hard to blame them because most Christians through the last 2,000 years of church history have also missed it. Right? So, so Jesus seemed to think the disciples would get something they're just not getting. And the question is, what is it? Like this conversation about swords, wh- where is Jesus going with this? And I think to answer that question, you have to kind of back up. So, so flashback to Luke chapter 9, much earlier in the gospel. Um, in, in Luke chapter 9, at this moment, Jesus is at the very height of his ministry, and, and he, he kind of steps aside from the crowds in the middle of like the peak of his popularity. And he, he says to his disciples, or he asks his disciples, you know, what are the crowds saying about me? Guys, what, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples tell him all the rumors they've heard about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And then Jesus says, well, what about you? What are you guys saying about me? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ sent from God. The Christ is this word for for a promised rescuer. Peter's saying, I think you are the one God sent to save us. And Jesus turns to him and says, in verse 21, don't tell anybody that. This comes up a lot in Jesus' ministry. Like the moment the disciples are actually getting something right, Jesus says, don't say anything. I mean, why, why does Jesus want them to not tell the thing that they know? Well, the the issue is that at this particular moment, Jesus is at the very peak of his popularity, and Jesus is worried that if rumors start going around that this is who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the one sent by God to rescue, everybody's going to get really excited, and the people are going to rally, and they're going to be ready to battle for freedom. Right? That's what happens when rumors start going around that you are the one God is sending to rescue. Jesus is like, if, if that rumor starts going around, people are going to come and they're going to be ready to battle. And he says this to his disciples. This isn't what I came for, guys. The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the legal experts, and be killed and on the third day rise again. Guys, we can't have people rallying here, getting ready for a big freedom battle because that's not where I'm headed. I'm headed to suffer and die. And then he goes on and says this to them. It's not just me. All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Guys, this is where I'm going, and you need to understand in a way nobody else is going to get that if you want to come after me, you're not going to battle. You're going to crucifixion. That's where this story is going. You are going to a place where you are meant to go out every day and live with the mindset of somebody who is walking toward their own death. Now, this does not make the catchiest ad slogan for following Jesus, right? Follow me and I will make every day feel like a living death. So the disciples do what you do when you don't like a sermon and they just decide to pretend they didn't hear it. They let the thing slide, And we know that they did this because a couple days later, we see exactly what happens. Jesus is up on a mountain and Jesus starts 
praying and then he's glowing and he's looking really important and and these two famous figures from Old Testament history show up like ghosts from the past and they're talking to him and the disciples get really excited by all this glory and they're like, we're moving in right here, Jesus, right here on the glowing mountain. And for one of only two times in Jesus' entire ministry, God has to tear heaven open and speak out loud and say to the disciples, listen to Jesus, you guys. Like they clearly had missed the whole point, right? And they have just demonstrated they missed what Jesus had just said to them a few days earlier. This is the, the, the like one time in Jesus' ministry, heaven shows up to throw weight directly behind Jesus. It's when they miss the sermon where Jesus says, this is where we're headed. So, so the question is, what did Jesus mean by this? Right? Like, what did Jesus mean when he says to his disciples, I, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me? Well, what are the disciples choosing not to hear? Well, Peter was not wrong when Jesus said, who do you think I am? Like, what do you think is going on? Peter was not wrong. God is on a mission to rescue the world from evil, and that mission has its kind of key part of the plan in Jesus. God is on a rescue mission. Jesus is the key. And this is the one part, I think it's important to say this again and again. This is the part of Christianity that does not have to be taken on faith at all. It only requires looking around. The fact that the world needs to be rescued, that the world has been overtaken by evil, is evident everywhere. I mean, we are watching right now children die because of the corruption of powerful leaders. We are watching right now so many lies spread through the world that it's hard for anybody to tell the difference anymore between lies and truth. We're watching people in Afghanistan go hungry because of the power games between nations. Every country in the world has some group of people it uses as a scapegoat and blames its problems on. Right? The fact that, that evil has overtaken the world is something that can be verified with any look in any direction. And the thing about evil is it doesn't go away on its own. It doesn't just sigh and give up one day. It has to be driven out. Right? So Peter is not wrong when he says God has sent Jesus to deal with this evil problem and drive evil out. The question is how is that going to happen? The question is means, method. Like if, if God is on a mission to drive evil out of the world, and that's what Jesus has been sent to do, how is this going to get done? And Peter and the disciples think they know, and their assumptions are the same as every other person for all of human history. If you want to drive evil out, what do you do? Well, you take the power so you get the weapons so you can force evil away. That's what human beings have always done. You try and get the power so you can get the weapons so you can force evil out. But the thing that Jesus believes he knows that no one prior to Jesus has, has ever really believed is that the problem with that strategy is every weapon you use against evil, evil turns back on the person carrying it. Every single weapon you use against evil, it's like evil has the superpower and it just rebounds it right back on the person carrying it. Which means there's only one weapon that you can use against evil that actually has the power to drive it out. And that one weapon that works is suffering love. It's like the stake in the heart of the vampire. 
right? Everything else is just an empty swipe. There's only one thing that works. The only thing that works against evil is love that puts down the sword and uses its hands to bless and to heal its oppressors. Almost no one in human history has ever believed that. This is like the thing that makes Jesus fundamentally different from every human ethics teacher that has ever lived. And the reason we don't believe this, I think, is obvious because it doesn't often work in the short term. I mean, Jesus heals this guy's ears, and the guy arrests him anyway. It's not like he's like, gosh, Jesus, that was really nice. I guess I won't do this after all. But what Jesus knows, Jesus, as the Son of God, he sees the entire arc of history. And what Jesus sees in that arc of history that the rest of us can't see is that those who suffer for love win. Like Jesus, who can see every possibility for how history goes, knows there's only one direction of history. There's only one arc that leads to victory over evil. Think Avengers, all you Avengers fans. Right? In all the possible futures, there's only one future that lands this thing. And that future is, belongs to those who suffer for love. That's the only one that's going to make this work. The only people who are going to overcome evil are people who return evil with blessing, who return harm with care, who accept unjust suffering instead of inflicting suffering. Those are the people who participate in the power that will overcome evil. This is the very heart of Jesus' ministry. This is what he's been teaching. This is what he's been talking about his entire ministry. He has come to deal with the defeat of evil once and for all, the defeat of evil, the pushing evil out of the world through two methods, number one, suffering love, and number two, prayer. Those are the two weapons Jesus has come to use to overcome evil. He's been teaching it the entire time he's been with his disciples. So come back to this conversation that they have around the table the last night of his life when Jesus says to his disciples, times are changing, you're going to need to sell your pants and get a sword. Jesus is using what he assumes would be an obvious metaphor. Right? Like he assumes it would be obvious because he's been telling them for years exactly what God will and won't do. Um, the metaphor Jesus is using is basically times are changing, guys. And up until now, to this point in Jesus' ministry, all the opposition has been focused on him, but he's about to die and go away, and all of the opposition will now be focused on his followers. He's saying to them, he's warning them, he's saying to them, people are about to come after you the way that they came after me. You are about to be at the center of the battlefield of this battle against the forces of evil. And what does it look like to be in the center of that opposition? Well, sometimes it looks like actual persecution. Sometimes it looks like suffering and death. Um, sometimes it just looks like social rejection. Right? It looks like being weird or uncool. It, it looks like being dishonored by the world uh, because the world is so confused that evil and its lies has the world so turned inside out that sometimes to the rest of the world, real freedom actually looks like oppression. Real courage looks like cowardice. The world has its whole mindset turned inside out. So Jesus says to them, you are about to be in the center of this kind of battle against evil and against opposition. But he gives them this metaphor and he gives them this warning 
assuming that he already taught them how they are going to prevail in that moment, right? When the swords come out, when the heat comes on, he's already taught them how to win, and that isn't with human weapons. They're going to win, they're going to prevail by blessing everybody everywhere all the time. They're going to win by healing the people that wound them. They are going to win by taking every opportunity that evil deals blows at them and return it with love. They are going to win by accepting their own suffering as the cost of victory. Jesus is really clear and really frank with his disciples all the way through that what he is calling his followers to is not just passive nonviolence. He is calling his followers to an active daily death. An active daily death of every day getting up and giving a little piece of their life over for the sake of love. A little piece of their life, giving it away over and over and over again. And Jesus says that there's a part of this act of loving that feels like an act of death. I mean, why does, how does love feel like death? Well, well there's a lot of possibilities. Um, one I already mentioned is the death of status and reputation, right? The, the death that comes when you do the right thing and the world doesn't give you credit for it. It might be, and Jesus talks about this a lot, it might be the death of certain kinds of material comforts because you're called to give things away for the love and good of others. It might, and Jesus talks about this one a lot, it might be the death of old loyalties, old relationships, the teams you used to play on because you're called into new loyalties as a servant of Jesus. It might, and this is a really hard one for Americans, it might be the death of your old identity, It might be the death of the things that used to define you. The kind of identity you have rooted in ethnicity or gender or nationality or sexuality or your Enneagram number, whatever the thing is that makes you, you think, the person you are, Jesus says, hand that over to me and be defined as my follower first. It might be the death of a sense of fairness. It might be the death of the person that you felt like you were, the the life that you had planned that was centered on you and the things that you wanted, that day by day you're being called to give away that life centered on self for a life centered on the service of others. Whatever it is, Jesus sets up this clear expectation. He says, following me, you need to know when you start out that following me is in some sense walking to your death. You should expect that every day is going to contain some element of suffering for love, some element of giving things away so that others can live. That is how you know you are on the right track. If every day contains a little bit of suffering for love, if every day contains a little bit of giving away of self, that's how you know you are following Jesus at all. Because that's what he says it is. And it's really important, I hope you noticed in the verse, he says, all my followers who would follow me. Not not some, not a few, anyone who wants to follow me, anyone who wants to be associated with me, this is what it's going to look like. And when we see Jesus in the garden the night before he dies, we, we see how hard this can get. Jesus is literally sweating blood, trying to choose suffering love over human power. Right? He, he, Jesus himself is sweating blood trying to make that choice. 
Even for Jesus, this can be challenging, but it's the single most central message that Jesus gives, that, that God is rescuing the world, God is defeating evil through suffering love, the suffering love of Jesus and the suffering love of the people who follow him. You know, before Christians were called Christians, the first name Jesus' followers were called by, they were called followers of the way. The way with like a capital W. Um, What is the way that they're following? The way Christians are following is the way of suffering love. That, That is the name that Christians were known by. And the disciples did not get this at first. It clearly went way over their heads the night before Jesus died, but eventually they got it because a few weeks later, they left homes and families and old loyalties and possessions. They endured beatings and shipwrecks, all so that this story could get out and so we could be here today. The disciples got it and they chose to lose so that they could win. Now, our own congregation belongs to this this tradition from 500 years ago called the Anabaptists who did the same thing. They read the stories of Jesus, it captured their imagination, and they said to themselves, we too want to lose to win. We want to be a part of this journey of the way of suffering love. The rest of the world is just consumed with this thought of like, we need to avoid suffering at every cost. But Jesus would say the most defining question of your life will be who or what are you willing to suffer for? Who are you willing to suffer for? What are you willing to suffer for? Even in small daily ways. That's the question that will define you. There's this incredible verse I love in the book of Revelation um, at the very end of the Bible where you hear the song that's being sung in heaven. And Revelation says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This kingdom we've been waiting for, it's here. And how did it come? The accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them day and night before our God, evil, has been thrown down. They gained the victory over him, on account of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their witness. Love for their own lives didn't make them afraid to die. This is Revelation's declaration. Throw that slide back up there for a second. At the end of the story, Revelation says, this is how it happens. The kingdom of God comes, evil is defeated. How? By the blood of the Lamb, the suffering love of Jesus, and by the faithful witness of others who weren't afraid to die with him. That is how evil was driven out of the world. That is the really incredible news that Jesus came proclaiming. We have a chance to participate as his followers in the epic defeat of evil. We have a chance to participate in the power of light that is driving out the power of darkness. And we do that by mingling our blood with Jesus' blood. We do that by taking the way of the cross he took. And Revelation says, those who choose this, those who take this counterintuitive, unnatural way will receive from God's hand the crown that marks victory over evil. That's seeing the whole arc of history. That is what it looks like to win. That is what it takes. Let's pray together. 
Jesus, your vision is much clearer than ours. So much clearer, it's hard sometimes for us to really believe you. Suffering doesn't feel like winning. Small daily deaths do not feel like victory. But you tell us to trust that you see what we can't. That there is a way, a path that leads to the overcoming of evil, the end of all injustice and darkness. And that answer is not found with swords or guns or tanks. That answer is found in willing, suffering love. Show us what it means in our own lives this week to in some way mingle our lives, our deaths with yours. So that evil here in this place can suffer some blow and know and hear that its end is coming. Coming in the cross, the cross of Jesus, and coming in the tiny crosses of those of us who follow him. Give us the courage and the strength for this victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.